Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I spoke with Jack Daniel, co-founder of Security B-Side. In this podcast episode, we'll be talking about the benefits of community building, the growth of Security B-Side's events, and the inimitable Becky Base. Enjoy the show. Hi, Jack. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, it's great to be with you. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to discuss your Shoulders of InfoSec program, the growth of B-Sides, and the Defender Award you won at last year's O'Reilly Security event. Cool. Sounds good. Well, let's start with a brief introduction. Um, you're Jack Daniel. It's pretty iconic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm Jack Daniel, and um, folks didn't know me through the things I've done in community, uh, primarily Security B-Sides. I'm one of the co-founders and sustainers of Security B-Sides. I've been in the vendor world for about 10 years, and before that, I uh, spent a lot of time uh, as a network and systems admin um, focusing on security for, for many years, and before that, just generic network admin stuff. But somehow, I am really just a displaced auto mechanic. I uh, was fixing cars one day, uh, one day, and I was in the parts department uh, a week later, and then they handed me computer tapes and said, here, do this. And uh, then one day I realized I was working full-time in IT, and if you were doing IT full-time in the 90s, you learned about security, uh, whether you wanted to or not. And I uh, found a home in the security space and uh, wandered aimlessly through life and landed here <laughs> on this podcast with you. Wow. Well, that's probably one of the most unusual origin stories we've heard. Displaced auto mechanic. That's that's a good one. So it's uh, it's one of the interesting things about our industry is, is it's evolved. I mean, anybody uh, my age or older, and you know, certainly a decade younger that's been in this for any length of time, you know, there weren't degrees in this. You didn't come out of high school, go into college, get a degree, and then enter the industry. And if you go back enough years, there wasn't really much of an industry to speak of. Uh, it, security was just what you did. Um, didn't, it wasn't until the early 70s that people started making a career out of security outside of government or outside of specific uh, corporations requirements. And then, um, you know, a few things happened and, uh, you know, a lot of people point to uh, uh, Loft and then subsequently at stake, uh, you know, sort of being a model for founding the industry. There are a lot of other things that came to it. But, you know, we come from all over the place, you know, people stumbled into it. A lot of different engineering backgrounds and a lot of random backgrounds where, you know, those of us who were comfortable with computers ended up playing with computers. As I said, with my case, if you did it, if you played with computers uh, decades ago, bad things happened, you had to fix it and keep it from happening again. And that's the path uh, many of us older folks took into security. And, Absolutely. Uh, I think that diversity, though, and that uh, distribution of all these different backgrounds, it adds a lot of strength to the community. I completely agree. I think that the professionalism that could that can come from the consistency that a you know formal uh, educational programs can bring to it is good uh, for the industry. But I hope that we don't lose the diversity. I think there's a, a place for a, a balance of things. As as rapidly as technologies and our use of technology evolves, I think we need people who can. Um, you know, respond and evolve and people that have moved through various phases of their career, um, even if they're still in their 20s, uh, I, I think have a better time keeping up with the uh, the madness of security. So I uh, I look forward to us professionalizing, but not losing the, the sort of um, wild and experimental and uh, adaptive bits of uh, security that have been part of it since the beginning. 
I would venture to say that security is one of those communities and security is one of those topics that people, there's almost a lure to it. Um, it's something that you don't jump into unless you suddenly find yourself passionate about security. So I hope that we keep seeing those people from different communities drawn to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, we certainly get a few folks that are jumping in now because they think they're going to make a lot of money and then, um, you know, maybe they do, but it's it's those that are, like you said, drawn to it that I think, um, you know, we're curious. We tech, we're technically curious. It's why there's such a huge uh, overlap between, you know, the, the traditional hacker community and the InfoSec community. It's, it's we're curious. We like to push boundaries. We like to use things in ways they weren't designed. And that's a good way to figure out what's insecure. And uh, then we, you know, turn it around and fix it so that other people can't uh, break our stuff. So your LinkedIn profile states that you're a community builder, a storyteller, technologist, and a security professional. And I love that description. Um, it doesn't confine you to one role, and it really talks about what you've been doing in the larger community. Can you tell listeners a bit more about yourself and how you've been building community? Yeah. When I started doing technology as, as a full-time, actually even before full-time, but when I was started doing technology as the bulk of my day-to-day uh, -day existence, I didn't have a budget for training. I didn't have time for training. Uh, what I found was there was a, there were user groups in the area. I was in South Suburban, Boston, South Shore, and there was a group in the Providence area um, at the time was called the Southern New England Network User Group. And it's evolved since then, but it was a great group and it wasn't very big, but it was a handful of folks like me who were admins struggling, trying to get their job done. And some of them had been at it for quite a while and some of us were newer and we got together and got the occasional uh, presentation from a vendor and frequently had presentations from more experienced admins talking about the challenges they had or security problems they had and their solutions. And I discovered that, uh, you know, I can go and learn from these folks that are fighting the same battles. And then I discovered some of the groups in the Boston area. Uh, some, you know, that came and went. There's a security group, NASIG, the Windows Server group, uh, Boston Linux Unix was a is a great group. Um, and so I discovered that I had I could go, I could meet people that were fighting the same battles, suffering the same. You know, we could complain about our employers, we could complain about uh, the usual things, learn and share. And as I grew in my career, I learned things which I shared. Because I felt that, you know, if you're going to teach me as soon as I know something, I'll, I'll teach you. We shared a lot of information throughout these groups. And that's where I started realizing that the more I share with people, the more they're willing to share with me, the more uh, confidence they have that, uh, you know, they can take me into confidence on something that maybe is a little uh, sensitive, uh, maybe uh, not things that should be publicly discussed. But, yeah, we, you know, we'll tell you this. It's like, I know you're a competitor, but if you're having this problem, look at this because this is something a vendor did. You know, that's sort of... Uh, unofficial ISAC sort of thing started there. And I realized that, you know, that's that's really great. It, it builds professional and personal relationships, which uh, I've become addicted to because it, it really is fantastic to be part of a community. And the more effort I put into it, the more I get back out of it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great resource to be part of a community. And after many years, I started going to ShmooCon at first in Washington, D.C., and eventually in the past decade or so doing DEF CON. Went to a few Black Hats, but uh, went to, you know, went to DEF CON, be part of the, that big scene, and then expanded from there as I, uh, 10 years ago, entered vendor space, and it made sense to, to spend the money. But it really came down, you know, comes back to the fact that I, I went to a user group, and these people were sharing what they knew, and then I ran into some crazy things and I figured out how to solve them and I shared it and people were like, that's cool. Uh, you know, can you walk us through what you had to do to fix that? And then that small community just uh, built and built and that idea of 
Um, I've learned things and I'm going to share them um, and ease your pain. And I hope you do the same for me is, is really what has built and informed my attitude towards community. And it started out as a, as a technical thing, but a lot of folks became, you know, good friends. And as often happens in people's lives, um, you know, the past few years for me have been less than ideal. And, you know, I have some very close friends, uh, people that I call my hacker family who are, you know, truly closer than um, most of my real family. And so it's been not only technical, but, uh, you know, emotionally and uh, what everything. But it's been fantastic because it just is, you know, you get out what you put in or more so in my case. I think I, I put a lot of effort in, but I get a lot out of it. And it's uh, it's great to see people move forward. It's also because security is such an amazing community, uh, such an amazing challenges that we face uh, we need we need to share ideas if we're gonna we're gonna pull it off. Absolutely. One of the things that I discovered, and the, the storyteller thing is that's what I do is I I tell stories, and it took me years to realize that you know my elevator pitch really leaves out all of the technology that I may have or may not have any more um, expertise in. But I do a pretty good job most of the time of translating um, ideas into ways that people can accept them. And so I've realized that, you know, that's, that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. Now my stories often connect people with ideas or other people or technologies. Um, you know, in my, in my role as uh, working for vendors, I tell stories uh, that connect people with the ideas and the products and services that uh, the folks that I work with sell and provide. But in the case of, you know, community, I tell stories that share ideas. You know, I, I connect people with other people, which is something that I do through the shoulders of InfoSec as I tell stories that connect people with, with other folks. I tell stories that connect them with ideas. And that's really what, you know, the value that I see that I bring to the communities now is making those connections through storytelling. And sometimes it's very technical. And sometimes it's uh, me playing a lot of sound clips from surf guitar and explaining how that relates to the history of modern music and then uh, ask how, you know, how does that work in our own industry? How do you, how do we know where we got, where we came from? I get a blank stare. It's like, oh yeah, well, you can tell me more about why your favorite band plays the way they do than you can why, um, you know, we do what we do in our industry. So storytelling is, is a big part of that. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's fun too. And I've reached the point in life where, you know, I'm just a crazy old man, so I get away with it. <laughs> You've touched on so many great points here, Jack. Um, you know, something you said was that the more you share, the more people are willing to share with you. And there's a sort of common sense ring to that. But I think a lot of people don't really reach their potential with that because there's a bit of fear about asking questions or a bit of fear about jumping into something. Absolutely. It takes um, it takes a lot to put yourself out there. And if you say dumb things, uh, especially in the, the hacker community, there are people that will uh, correct you and not always as politely as you would hope. You know, we do try to be good. You know, we try to be welcoming and but there are people who are going to correct you and it you you're hanging yourself out there to share stuff. Uh, I had it took me a while to do it and it was in smaller groups. But it does take a certain amount. And, you know, one of the things that's worked for me is that as I've gotten older, I, as life uh, wears on you, you realize that being slightly embarrassed in front of a handful of people is really not a big deal. So it's it's easier to, to move forward. Um, but, uh, you know, getting older is, is not necessarily the best way to do it. A little, a little coaching, a little practice and a little mentorship is probably a lot better than waiting to be old and cranky like me. Yeah, I feel like there's so much you also talked about, you know, kind of that overlap. It's not just technical, it's like an emotional support because 
fighting the same battles, we're sharing the same struggles. There's so much truth to that. And I feel like it would be such a huge help if um, more people were aware of that in the security community. Burnout is a very real thing in this community. And I feel like that community building and feeling like you can vent your challenges and your struggles and your frustrations to somebody can turn what would be an abysmal day into a bad day and you can turn the page and open it on a new day. So it just has such an important role. A group, uh, a sort of loose group for a while, we were tightly knit of uh, folks, including uh, Martin McKay and Gal Sponsor and, and Josh Corman and Stacey Thayer. And I'm blanking on the, the rest of the, the crowd. We did some formal and informal studies on stress and burnout several years ago, six, seven years ago now. And we did some presentations and panels on it. And, you know, none of us had the time to do a real in-depth studies. Some other folks have done are doing work on stress and burnout and trying to get some metrics around it. And none of us are psychologists, none of us are therapists, but we realized that there was a challenge. And, you know, we've talked about it in the past few years. I've been doing uh, a series of talks on, you know, survival skills, coping skills. And it's, you know, some people question, first of all, generally speaking, we're well-paid. People aren't shooting at us. You know, we have high employment. If you have the right skill set, that's a whole other rant that we can't get into. But, you know, the, the skills shortage is interesting. But um, if you have the right skill set, you have plenty of career options. Uh, we tend to be paid well. We're indoors. Um, things like that. We shouldn't complain. And what I realized is I really uh, no longer care whether or not we're uh, we suffer from stress and burnout more than anybody else. Uh, what I've realized is, is that if my friends and peers are suffering, let's take care of our own community first, and then maybe we'll try to make the world a better place. But we'll start out with um, you know trying to do our jobs and securing the world, and let's try to do our jobs in uh, taking care of of peers because none of us. You know, I always ask the question when I'm talking to a group of managers who has uh, too many well-trained and experienced personnel on their teams, you know, and everybody kind of laughs at me. And I said, who finds it easy to hire that kind of person? And everybody laughs. It's like, well, how about if we take care of those people? Even if you're um, a bit of a jerk, do it for Machiavellian reasons. <laughs> There aren't enough of us. I would like you to do it for uh, for idealistic reasons, but the older I get, the more pragmatic I get. You know, do do good for whatever reason you do it for. I'd really be happy if it was for you know altruistic reasons, but whatever it is, if you're if you're being a decent person, that's okay. So yeah, you know, and I talk about it, and I try not to be too you know when the the formal burnout talks could be pretty bleak uh, because we talked about some of the the real challenges, and you know that certainly gets into substance abuse, it gets into suicides, it gets into mental illness. Um, um, but on the survival skills stuff, you know, it, there are a couple of things that were just overwhelming. We all drink too much, but most of us feel guilty about it. Uh, but for healthy things, almost universally, everybody's like, just do something, go outside, go for a walk, do you know, exercise. Some people take it out on the gym and high impact. Other people uh, take their dog to the creek and fish. Uh, but, you know, just go outdoors. And there are things like that. And, you know, play music, put on a set of headphones, um, think about the music you play and just what I've found is that the tips really don't matter for the most part. It's telling people in an audience, it's like, you know, we all get stressed, right? We have stressful jobs and then we're still humans and life is stressful. It's okay. You get stressed. Um, you know, tell people you're stressed, go for a walk. Um, yeah. I used, I used to get up, walk a hundred yards to the coffee shop, have another coffee and then walk back. And it's sort of, I'd get calmed down and the coffee would kick in. And by the time I sat back at my desk, I'd be twitchy again, but that was, you know, a different twitch, right? You know, yeah. it was caffeine instead of stress, but it just anything. But like I said, I, 
it's a real, it's a challenge. And if, if it doesn't bother you, if you're, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, you know, just have a little empathy for people that do suffer with, uh, with stress and, uh, people that are dealing with, with burnout, have a little empathy, um, you know, it goes a long way, not just stress and burnout, be a little empathetic to people. And it makes it a lot easier, makes your workspace, uh, whether it's formal, whether it's, you know, your, your job or whether it's your hacker space or, you know, the, the soccer thing that you coach for your kids, a little bit of empathy and a little bit of patience with people um, makes it all a lot easier on them, but also on you. Very true. I think that tendency towards burnout too is a reflection of the fact that people are passionate about what they do in this space as we said like the people that are so involved they're they're passionate about what they do and it's hard sometimes to turn that off i mean security is a 24 7 job and you need to reset every once in a while so um you kind of have to have some sort of balance in your life we all have to have balance regardless of which sort of job you're in um but it's sometimes important to just kind of step back and remember uh this is not your entire life even if you've built your life around this particular part Right. There are a couple of those things. One of them I, I hadn't really thought about until a recent conversation uh, a few months ago now. Um, one of the things, that particularly for those in the, the hacker community there, or but, you know, security researchers, you know, they make you make your name in, in something. Right. Um, you know, maybe you're the, the iPhone hacker or the Android hacker, or maybe you're the, the drone person, or maybe you're the, you know, we're, we're the, the expert on security issues and OS2 warp or whatever it was. Um, you aren't the iPhone guy. You are not the OS2 lady. You're you. You have a skill set. Uh, and that's important to remember because, you know, you evolve personally and your career evolves and maybe you stop doing, you know, phone hacking and end up working with, um, you know, with uh, one of the big uh, consultancies doing, uh, you know, management stuff or compliance stuff because that's where you've, you've got the perspective that gives you the ability to talk to executives. You don't stop being you just because that thing. So if you get tied up in an identity with a technology, the technology evolves. You know, we're, we're humans and uh, we, can, we can get tied up in ideas and forget that we're people. And we, we do. You know, there are people that, uh, whose relief is, is playing computer games. Well, if you go from one computer terminal to another and you spend, you know, 16, 17 hours a day in front of computers, are you, you know, are, if you enjoy it, that's great. But is that really a break? Um, if, you know, if you're like me and you have the Apple Watch on that's tethered to your iPhone and, you know, wherever you are on the planet, uh, your watch, you know, your wrist goes buzz. You know, how do you manage that? And in my case, one of the things I've found that's amazing about it is that I use it to triage email. I delete a lot of stuff, um, but also there's a button right on there that puts it in do not disturb mode. It's like, you know what? I, I need a couple hours to focus off, right? And, and take that time. Uh, and it's, it depends on your own environment. A lot of folks are in, in roles where they don't get to disconnect uh, often enough and it's helpful. And then you feel like you're going through withdrawal. So you have to balance it. Yes. Well... I feel like we could talk about this all day, but I'd love to jump over and talk a bit about the B-Sides conferences. Uh, you were one of the original founders. Can you tell us a little bit about what sparked the creation of B-Sides? Yeah, yeah. so B-Sides was just an idea. There were a handful of people that were kind of frustrated with the state of um, events, and um, a couple of folks were... Was critical. A little over eight years ago was the first B-Sides in Las Vegas. But if you back up about a year... Uh, a lot of people in the security community that are part of, you know, the conference scene or, or the hacker cons or security cons scene, 
um, we're doing the CitySec meetups in cities around the U.S. And that was also when uh, Twitter started to become more mainstream. And a lot of us jumped on Twitter. And Jennifer Leggio was uh, was at Fortinet at the time. And she realized, um, being the social media guru she is, she realized, hey, we should connect the dots with these various groups and made a list. And so a few hundred people and then a thousand and more who are in the industry uh, landed in Twitter. And so a little over eight years ago, the rejection letters went out from Black Hat and DEF CON. And uh, as people had this new medium. And uh, as soon as we get on Twitter, we learned to complain on Twitter because that's what it's good for. Right. <laughs> and so a handful of us were watching this and was like, ah, oh, a bunch of talks. And, but a group of us, um, Chris Nickerson, Mike Kahn, myself, and a few others sort of had a back channel conversation about, well, you know, why did these get turned down? And some of them were like, well, you've been telling the same story for three years. It's time for you to come up with something fresh. Or, oh, I'm sure that they got, you know, 50 mobile malware submissions or whatever it was at the time. Then we saw a handful of them that were, hey, this is interesting, but that's not something I would ever expect to see at Black Hat. You know, it's not going to put 400, 600, 2,000 people in a room. It's just not a Black Hat or Defcon talk. But I bet a couple dozen people would be interested in that. That's interesting. It's too bad there isn't a place for it. Or, oh, that's an incomplete thought. That looks really cool, but you, it's not ready for prime time. Uh, it's too bad there's not a place for it. And then we sort of looked at each other and said, well, why don't we make a place for it? And that's the basics of where, you know, B-Sides came from. The first B-Sides in Las Vegas was just over eight years, the end, years ago, the end of July. And it was um, the the, def, the DC 303 crew uh, sometimes rented a house instead of all doing d different hotel rooms. And they said, well, there's a big room in the house. Why don't we do talks there? And uh, a bunch of folks came through and we had talks on uh, some interesting things, the, the management, how to manage a group of uh, pen testers. You know, there were enough pen testers who had moved up in their careers that they were now managing others. And that was that's not something that's going to fill a room at Black Hat or DEF CON, but the, there are a lot of our friends that were in that position. It was a good talk. And there were things that H.D. Moore and Val Smith and some of the other well-known folks did talks on, but they got to be a little bit more candid, a little bit more blunt and brutal because the, the venue is small and it's uh, they had a better control of whether or not there were cameras and things like that. Uh, and then there were some other things. The, the One of the most impressive events. The best attended talk of the two days of the first uh, B-Sides was uh, Gender Issues and Information Security, Darren Jacobs, uh, known as Sec Barbie, and a whole bunch of other women were involved in. And that was just something that, that wasn't likely to happen at Black Hat or DEF CON. Wow. So Security B-Sides had such a humble beginning when you think about where it is these days. I mean, clearly it's found a life of its own. Um, B-Sides Las Vegas this year was at capacity at 3,600 attendees, and that doesn't even include the fact that passes were shared amongst attendees. So Yeah, we have uh, 2,800 plus badges, and then we created some new badges, and there was a lot of badge sharing. And yes, we were well over... Well over 3,000. We had to work with the hotel and the hotel had to work with the, the fire and marshal to make sure that we could do what we were doing safely uh, because it's it's just packed. We didn't expect much. I mean, there had been some conversations about the evolution of the security conference and there were some ideas from unconferences and other things that, that we took to heart, but uh, it really evolved into its own thing. And the first one, most of us was like, yeah, let's do this thing. I don't know if it'll ever happen again, but by the end, people were like, we, we need to do one in San Francisco sometime around the uh, the RSA event. And what we realized, though, was pinning them, you know, the B-side name being, you know, a reference to the B-side of, uh, of 
45s. You know, the, the B side of the uh, of the single was where you let the, the bass player prove they were really a musician or get into the crazy deep cuts or whatever. Um, it was, uh, you know, more artistic. So we liked that idea, but we didn't always want to be a, a B side to another event didn't want to get into the classic outboarding model. So actually the second B-Sides ever was over in Mountain View, California, and it was a standalone event. And then RSA happened and um, there was one in San Francisco and it went well. And one in happened in Austin, Texas that we put together and uh, one out in Boston that uh, was a good event in Denver. And then we were at the end of the first year, we were back in Las Vegas. We're like, hey, something's happening. This is this is sort of a thing. And Mike and Chris and I stayed the, the three folks that sort of guided and onboarded folks and events started happening around the world. Uh, you know, they moved into Canada and then um, Berlin was the first one outside the U.S. And they've evolved and it's uh, spiraled out of control in a good way. Uh, they are uh, at their best. They, they reflect the local community and the local organizers. So an event in, in Dallas feels different than an event in New Orleans and an event in Nashville uh, feels different than an event in London. Um, and that's what we want. You know, there, there are a handful of basic ideas uh, that are behind B-sides, but uh, B-sides Las Vegas this year was event number 345 you know, since we started eight years ago. Wow. And it's it takes tens of thousands of people to uh, organize, volunteer, speak, sponsor, and participate. You know, around the world, the only continent that hasn't hosted one is uh, Antarctica. People <laughs> keep threatening to make that happen. Um, we're finally making it to New Zealand later this year, um, and you know, these are all run by local teams. Um, they're they're folks that are bringing things into their communities and uh, building their community. And I have a handful of things that I talk about. They're not really hard and fast rules. The, you know, the only rules really are, you know, don't sell out the participants. You know, we certainly encourage sponsors, but it's not about buying your way into speaking. It's not about uh, sales pitches. It's about sharing ideas. Um, you know, and the, the call for papers needs to be open so that uh, whatever the community submits is what you get. And it's it's a model that works for a lot of people. Some people want more control or more um, commercial, and that's fine. Um, but uh, B-sides are, are really about uh, sharing interesting content building community, fostering conversations. And one of the things that I discovered within the first year was that if you actually share interesting content and then you have good conversations about it, that helps build your local community, build it or strengthen it. And if you do those things and participate yourself, that has a profound impact on people's careers. And we started seeing dramatic changes in people's careers in under a year um, with that. And that's one of the reasons we keep doing it. And one of the reasons a lot of the events do things to bring new people into the community, bring them up, you know, help them give their first talk and a variety of other things. Cause we want to, to bring them into the community, welcome them in and help them move forward personally and professionally. And the model works well. And some places are, you know, have events for kids. Some places are more focused on a single topic because the region is all about, you know, financial services or computer gaming or things like that. But it's, uh, it reflects the local community and that's what, you know, what it feeds on. It brings people together. And uh, it's just, it's exploded in ways that none of us could have imagined. Last year, there were 70 events around the world in 2016. I think we're going to be 76 or 77 uh, for 2017. And some of them are a couple dozen people and some of them are a few thousand people. And um, there's, uh, in, in many ways, the little tiny ones connect people that would never get connected otherwise. 
but on the other hand, the big ones put a ton of uh, content in one place um, for low or no cost. It's it's just amazing. It's been a wild ride, and uh, I've basically been chanting to myself for eight years, don't mess this up. <laughs> I'd say it's an amazing testament to what was just a simple idea, though, and it really speaks to the need for community and that sense of belonging and sharing ideas and all these ideals that um, you really espouse. So um, with this current state of security, and we've talked about we're seeing a lot of new faces, there's a lot of people joining, people that may have come directly from a degree program or people that are coming from very different beginnings. We see some pain sort of introduced by this wave of new faces, and um, it exists, that pain exists for both the old community members and the new community members as they try to sort of find a new balance. Um, you've had such a significant role in building that sense of community in InfoSec, and I'm curious to hear what you'd tell both of those subsets. So perhaps let's start with the existing community, the old guard, you might say. What would you suggest they keep in mind as they interact with these new community members? Uh, so th there are a couple of answers. I'll start with the flip answer is remember, some of us want to be able to get out of this someday. And if you're not nice to the new people, we're going to be doing this until we die. Um, <laughs> more... More honestly, uh, we were all new once. We're in an industry where you can't know it all. Uh, things are changing so rapidly that you, even the old guard need to uh, learn continuously. And if you share what you know, it's going to be a lot easier to learn. And believe it or not, some of these kids actually know what they're talking about. And they've grown up with technology and have a different point of view. Um, and different points of view give us different ways of looking at things. Um, it's uh, it's a great way to to give back. And if if you can't be altruistic, um, it's a good. It's still a fantastic way to keep up with um, the crazy skill changes that that are required. But uh, you know, we were all new once, and you know, part of the charm of this industry is that there is so much to learn, and it's it's continuous. So. Uh, you know, certainly if you've accomplished things, you should feel proud of your accomplishments. But remember um, that you don't you don't get there alone. Uh, even if you're self-taught, you learned from something that somebody wrote or code that somebody wrote or hardware that somebody assembled. So, um, you know, we all, as Newton actually paraphrased a mentor of his, you know, if, uh, if we've seen farther, it's uh, if he has seen farther, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. So how would you advise someone new to security? What would you tell them they should be focused on? How should they interact in the community? There are uh, so many different personalities that come in. It's hard to have, you know, generic suggestions, but there are a couple of things. Uh, a bit of humility goes a long way. Um, even if you are brilliant and young, a little humility is uh, even yeah, makes it a lot easier for us old farts to be accepting of you, um, to realize that you're new. Uh, even if you know a lot, technically, you haven't worked in a, an environment that uh, makes you deal with people and other horrible things. Uh, so, you know, maybe we can coach you on that. But, uh, you know, one of the things that just I really stress is, uh, you know, no matter what it is that you're doing, whatever your specialty is, uh, show your work, as the teachers told you from, you know, elementary school forward. There's, you may have a portfolio of code, you, whatever it is, but if you're doing interesting things and your GitHub repository shows that, that's awesome. If you're blogging, if you have a YouTube channel, if there's actually decent content, if you've given talks and recorded them or made your slides available on something, 
put out what you've done. And even if it's not great, even if you're embarrassed by some of it, um, I'm certainly, you know, continuously evolving the ideas that I have. And some of what I've said, you know, some years ago is I doesn't, doesn't hold up well. So when you're new, that's okay. Just, just get it out there. Make, make it obvious to everyone else that you want to be part of this industry or out of part of these communities. And it's going to be a lot easier to be accepting, accepted into the communities and get those, uh, those connections, they're going to help you understand the industry, not necessarily just, you know, networking for, for, you know, climbing the career ladder, but networking to, to actually be good at it and, and mentally healthy and, and productive and all of those things. So uh, a little humility and uh, a lot of patience and, you know, mentorships are uh, challenging and sometimes they work well, sometimes they don't, but they're, uh, if you can find a mentor, understand that um, the mentor is giving you uh, some precious time and uh, be patient with them. And then, you know, the, the other side is mentors should remember that uh, we're, we're not trying to um, flog people into the industry. We're trying to, to, to bring them in. But really, um, there's so much to learn. If we don't share from experience to new folks, then we're, we're behind. You touched on this just a minute ago, and I want to go back to it. Um, you said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants, which um, I think you mentioned was most famously attributed to Sir Isaac Newton. And it also brings me to another community-based project that you've worked on, the Shoulders of Infosac. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, as I said, I haven't really been part of the hacker community and infosec community until uh, actively beyond the Boston area, you know, until the past 10 or 12 years. I was stayed local and uh, certainly wasn't involved in, I don't come out of a military background. I, you know, did not do military intelligence and didn't do a stint at FBI or, you know, NSA or things where a lot of folks, as I sit in corporate offices in Maryland, you know, a lot of folks around me got that path. So I didn't have that perspective on history. And I really don't know the the early days hacker history as well as I probably should, even though a lot of a lot of the folks from that are, are uh, friends of mine. So I started uh, this realizing that I have friends like Gene Spafford and uh, like the like the late uh, Becky Bass who have seen a lot of this and know a lot of the stories. And I decided to do a presentation a few years ago at DerbyCon on sort of an introduction to the the folks that made our industry what it is and made our practices what it is. And I asked a whole bunch of people. Spaff was uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, Becky was uh, amazingly helpful. Marcus Ranum and Ron Gula and just a, a long list of folks. Uh, threw a bunch of names at me and I realized that wasn't going to fit in a single presentation. So I did the presentation, introduced a lot of people to a lot of ideas and uh, decided I would throw it into a wiki and just kind of work on it. And it tends to get updated every few months. I'll spend several days or a week just hammering away at updating it. Then I have a conversation that reminds me that I need to go somewhere with it. And I add, and the, the wiki is, is a simple wiki with a lot of names and a lot of links to some of the things they've done. And the idea is to sort of make it easy to find a, a quick history of information security and uh, to a lesser extent the hacker culture, although that's the, the next big leap is finding um, someone else to help me with that. Uh, Davi Ottenheimer has done a lot of the, the hacker history uh, because there's a huge overlap. So it became this thing and I realized it was, there was a lot more information there and there are some sources out there that have, that go in one direction or another but there wasn't something comprehensive and it's, you know, it's just an ugly wiki. However, it has 
hundreds of names with links to all sorts of things that they've done and some of their stories. And if you dig into these people, you start seeing the connections. You start seeing that you know the, the, the modern practice of information security starts out, basically comes out of World War II. It evolves out of military security and national security and, and securing early systems. But some of the models and some of the practices quickly became obsolete. However, some of the foundational ideas really are evergreen. There are reports. Uh, I'm sure people that are in the industry are tired of hearing this, but if you haven't read it yet, go out and find the Ware report the, that Willis Ware led starting in 67. I think the final edition was, came out in 71. And yeah, it's it, at, a, uh, at one level, it's all obsolete. However, if you abstract it back a little bit, swap a few words out, change a couple of images and the few graphics that are in there, and think about it more big picture than detail-oriented, you realize that uh, a lot of the foundational problems we've got now are ones that were defined decades ago. And, you know, absolutely, it's easier to define a problem than it is to fix it. But until you define it, you you can't fix it. So it's interesting to see these challenges and how they've evolved over time and how things like the commoditization and consumerization of hardware and software have had an impact. And these stories all weave in and we bring people in and I try to make the people have personalities hmm. or expose their expose their personalities. There you go. It's um, such a great cause and it highlights contributions from people that otherwise may not be highlighted, or as you said, they're not all sourced in one place. So that's such a great resource. If you're not familiar with it, um, people should definitely check that out. I also wanted to mention um, your project InfoSec, uh, Shoulders of InfoSec, last year, it won one of our O'Reilly Defender Awards. Um, and just briefly, our Defender Awards uh, were created to acknowledge and celebrate defensive security heroes. It just gave us an opportunity to recognize individual contributors who have demonstrated leadership or creativity or collaboration in the defensive security field. Um, you also mentioned Becky Vase, and we were so fortunate last year. We were, in fact, giddy when Becky Vase uh, signed up last year to give a keynote at O'Reilly Security. Um, for those that don't know, Becky was a pioneer in security research and an early information security program manager directing research for the U.S. Department of Defense in the 80s and 90s. Um, she had programs focused on transferring research into sort of the very beginning um, commercial security product market. So she helped translate solutions um, and provide them to a larger audience. Um, unfortunately, Becky passed away earlier this year, and um, I would just love to kind of give tribute to Becky at this point. Jack, do you want to tell us what Becky um, meant to you in this community? Um, I will go a different direction than the technology stuff. Uh, Becky gave the best hugs in the world. Um, Becky was just um, an amazingly warm, friendly, welcoming, and mentoring person. Uh, I, my career was well-established, and I met her through Jean Spafford, through what um, we lovingly refer to as the, the curmudgeon dinner. A bunch of us uh, older folk get together and complain about our health ailments and then complain about the industry, and then we become optimistic in the end. And, um, that happens annually, and uh, you know, th over the years, uh, I got to talk to Becky and see her in, in many different places, and we would talk about um, a whole bunch of things, but one of the things that always struck me about Becky is the number of people who she mentored through the years and the number of people who, you know, whose careers got a start or a boost because of Becky and the 
she can't tell the story. She tells it better than uh, she told it better than I do. But one of the things that I think uh, people really need to know about Becky was that when she came from South Alabama and uh, when she came north here to the D.C. area, um, her dad said, you know, you can you can go up north and get your government job and uh, marry a Yankee. Uh, but when you're done doing that, uh, I want you to come home because remember, we need help down here. And for those who don't know, when she left her consulting practice, she went to the University of South Alabama, not even University of Alabama, University of South Alabama, set up a cybersecurity program and was bringing cybersecurity education to people who otherwise wouldn't get it and was building a, a built a fantastic program. And and she did it because she promised her dad she would. Uh, that's that's a little insight into Becky if you don't uh, know what kind of person she was. You know, technically, you, you covered the, the Department of Defense stuff. The fact that she was known as the you know den mother of IDS for her work uh, fostering and supporting um, intrusion detection and network behavior analysis stuff. Uh, she got sick of that name. She couldn't shake it. She actually told me to call her the cranky broad instead of that when she saw one of my shoulders talks that included her. Um, but she was just pure awesome. and she. Um, she would go out of her way to help people. And the more they needed, the more likely she would find them and help them. Um, and it was a great loss. I mean, it, it kicked a lot of us very hard. A lot of us in the industry were, uh, were and still are uh, missing her greatly. Info mom. She was amazing. She really was amazing. I only knew her briefly, unfortunately, but I have to say the first time I jumped on a call with her, she was just such a warm, friendly presence. And if I hadn't known the history about her, you know, some people sort of have an ego, they get in their way. And Becky didn't have that. She was just truly an amazing, warm, accepting personality um, and such just an amazing person, as you said. Um, and because of both that role she had as a pioneer, as a technologist, and because of her uh, desire and efforts to build community, um, I'm really excited. We at O'Reilly have decided to name one of our Defender Awards after her. In fact, we'll be renaming our individual contributor Defender Award in memory of Becky Bass. She just engendered so much of what we believe in as we build the O'Reilly Security Conference. You know, first and foremost, true dedication to defensive security, but also diversity, community building, the power of storytelling. Um, we'll be releasing some more information about this week, and we'll also be opening up Becky's keynote that she gave at O'Reilly Security last year. It'll be fully available for those of you that want to see what Becky saw as the future of cybersecurity. That's, that's awesome. I am uh, so happy to hear that. Yeah, we're very excited. So we'll be sharing more information on that later this week. Um, and Jack, I just want to say thank you so much for your contributions to the community and for also joining me today on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Well, thank you. I, I I honestly get more out of it than I put into it. I put a lot into our communities, but it's uh, it has been fantastic for me personally and professionally. And uh, it was a pleasure to join you. Had a great chat today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can reach Jack on Twitter at Jack underscore Daniel. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.